And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites, who had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner, and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook, Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the ark of the uh, the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, "Carry the ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, He will bring me back and let me see both it and His dwelling place. But if He says I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let Him do to me what seems good to Him." The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God worshipped, Behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, 
I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Second Samuel 16, verses 1 to 14. When David had passed a little beyond the submit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought this? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Bahurim, there came a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gira. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you men of blood, you worthless men. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him too. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. The question that um, I thought I might ask this morning is, I wonder whether you have ever had the experience of the chickens coming home uh, to roost. I wonder. Um, I guess we all have in a small way, um, uh, that gut-wrenching moment when we suddenly realise that we have been caught out, that our failure or our wrongdoing has been laid bare, um, or perhaps the near miss, uh, when just for a moment it looks like we might be found out. Um, I guess all of us have had that experience in a small way. 
every so often we see it happen on a catastrophic scale. Uh, the ministry leader, um, whose years of sexual sin or financial embezzlement are suddenly laid bare. And overnight, their ministry is wrecked, and their family is broken, and their children despise them, and their reputation is left in tatters. Probably worst of all, none of their life, as in the last decades, makes sense anymore. Or the family man, whose secret vices finally shatter everything that he holds dear. Um, or the alcoholic, who has successfully concealed years of deceit and of addiction, but then their health fails, and it becomes clear to everybody what has really been going on. And the chickens come home to roost. Now, from one angle, we love it, don't we? We have a special celebratory word for it in the English language. Comeuppance. For many years, my favourite film was the 1994 classic, The Shawshank Redemption. Um, if you've got a, a strong stomach for bad language, it is a great film and you might enjoy watching it. If you have watched it... You'll remember that moment when prison warden Norton is finally faces the consequences of what he's done. And it is delicious. My guess is that no one who has ever watched that film has ever felt bad for warden Norton. But there is another side to it. I remember a conversation that I had with a friend of mine on the phone who was going through something like that and everything was falling apart and it was very substantially his fault. And he was desperate. And he said to me, Gwilym, I don't see how it's ever going to get any better. I can't see how I'm going to come back from this. And the awful thing was that as I listened to him speaking, I was thinking, do you know what? I think you may very well be right. Sometimes the messes that we make really are big enough that there is no way back from them. Sometimes the chickens really do come home to roost. Well, let me ask, if you were on the phone to my friend, what would you say? What can we say at a moment like that? Well, we're in 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 17 um, this morning. And they are some of the most tragic chapters in the whole of the Bible. And they're the moment when David's fatal flaw finally brings the whole kingdom crashing down around his ears. I suppose you might say it's the moment when King David's chickens come home to roost. And before we get to what you might say to David or to anyone else at a moment like that, where we need to start this morning is with the fact that it is right that those things come down upon him. They're heartbreaking chapters, but the first thing that we need to see this morning is that judgment must fall. Judgment must fall on David's house. And now we've got three chapters in front of us. Um, I thought that I'd spare you trying to cover all of it this morning. And so we're going to focus in on chapter 15 and verses 30 to 32. Uh, 15 verse 30 is probably the darkest moment in these chapters, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And so all the intrigue of the last few weeks um, has finally come to a head, and Absalom, um, David's son, who was so angry with him last week, has rebelled against him and has seized the kingdom. 
And David is outthought, outmaneuvered, ousted, and on the run. It's crushingly sad. Um, chapter 15 is a chapter that is soaked in tears. And all the people weep, verse 23, and they all wept as David crossed out of the city. David's retinue, as they walk up the Mount of Olives, they weep too. And David walks barefoot, head covered, tears streaming down his face. Of course they wept, because the kingdom, that great beacon of hope and light and peace in a world that's at war, the kingdom had been left to the wolves. The sweet psalmist of Israel, who with his harp could tame even the heart of mad King Saul, well, suddenly he has lost the hearts of his people. It's crushingly sad. It's horribly cruel. And the thing that brings David's kingdom crashing down is not the Philistines. It is the treachery of his own friends and family. And so the chapter begins with the treachery of his son, Absalom. Uh, Do you know, right through 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 20, one thing never changes, which is that David never stops loving Absalom. He loves Absalom when Absalom is exiled. He loves him when he rebels. He loves him when they're at war. Even at the moment when the battle is happening, David's heart goes out to Absalom. Absalom hates David and will quickly have him dead. Betrayed by his son and also by his friend, verse 31. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. It's difficult to be absolutely sure, but it was probably Ahithophel that David was thinking about when he wrote the famous words in Psalm 41. You might know them. Um, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It's cruel, isn't it? A son and your friend conspiring together to tear your throne from you. It's crushingly sad, it's horribly cruel, it's desperate. I mean, this book of rises and falls, of ascents and descents, you might think there's something quite optimistic about the fact that David is going up the Mount of Olives. Uh, You'd be wrong, Uh, you'd be wrong. And David is emotionally and physically and spiritually exhausted. And he's having to trudge up this hill with his retinue and children amongst him in the hope that they get over the brow of this hill before the wolves in the valley below catch a glimpse of them and come to kill them. The whole way through chapters 15 to 17, David is never more than a few moments away from being completely undone. It's desperate. An old man, robbed of dignity, fleeing for his life and fleeing all the way out of the land from Jerusalem across the Jordan, and in the end, by the end of chapter 17, into exile. Most importantly, it is deserved. It is deserved. Now, there's a sense in which that's not true. One of the horrible things about 2 Samuel chapter 15 is the ugliness of Absalom's alternative regime. Absalom is all posture, all show. And his is a kingdom built on hype and a shiny chariot, all the style and none of the substance. But although David is hardly less deserving of the crown than Absalom, 
the truth is that David had this coming. His adultery, his murder, his despising of God's word of promise, his own failures of wisdom and justice, they all lead here. This is the moment that Nathan spoke about in chapter 12, the moment when the sword comes against David's own house. This is the moment when his wives are taken by a neighbor. The chickens have come home to roost. Verse 30 again, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. What makes it so crushing is not just that it's awful, it's not just that it looks like there might be no way back. It is that David, and he knew this, he deserved it. He deserved it. That's the first thing we have to see this morning. Judgment must fall on David's house. Now we need to know this, don't we? Firstly, because we need to get our view of God right. You see, God does not play favorites. It's tempting to think that God is the kind of God who just lets his man off the hook for the sake of the greater good. It's tempting to think that, you know, Saul gets justice, but David gets grace because David is God's friend. It's tempting to think that as long as you say sorry with enough conviction, that all the consequences will just melt away. But it's not true. God shows no partiality. I remember the time that my parents taught me this. Um, I'd been playing with a bow and arrow at the age of eight, I think, in my garden. I'd been tormenting my sister, uh, chasing my sister around the garden. Um, And somehow, as I rounded a corner between a pillar and a wall, um, I broke the bow um, as I went around the corner. Um, And for some reason in my eight-year-old head, it made sense to say that my sister had broken my bow and arrow. And so that's what I told my parents. And for some reason, um, to do with our track record, I suppose, they didn't believe me. Um, And so I remember two things about that morning. Um, The first is, I remember quite vividly, I remember sitting in our front room for what felt like hours as my parents waited for me to break, um, or for my sister to break. I think they knew which way the wind was blowing. And I remember that. And the second thing I remember is the shock that when eventually I did, and I admitted that I had broken the bow, and I began to say sorry, the shock that they disciplined me anyway. Quite right. I mean, just think what I've been trying to make my sister bear. Just think what David has done to the kingdom. Just think how much damage he has done. The awful consequences of his failure. The fact that he says sorry doesn't change what he did. Judgment must fall. And that leads to our second point. We need to know that this is the end. In the end, judgment must always fall. You know, sin sin is a great salesman, isn't it? It always talks up the positives and it always hides the consequences. Just think about David. Do you think as he let his gaze rest on Bathsheba, do you think that if he'd seen this, two sons dead, another son in open revolt, his best friend having betrayed him, his capital abandoned, the tears running down his face, 
Do you think if he had seen all of that, do you think he'd have sent for her? Not likely. 2 Samuel chapter 15 is a great mirror for us. If Israel wanted to know where their sin would lead in the end, if we want to know where our sin must naturally lead in the end, it ends here. Judgment must fall. And of course, that takes us back to the question I was asking. What do you say to someone when it comes crashing down like this? When it looks like there's no way back and they deserve it? And the trouble with my introduction is that I made it sound like that's only a question for people who are going through spectacular falls of grace. But if judgment must fall, it's a question for us all, isn't it? What hope is left to us when we realize that this is where our sin takes us? Well, secondly, this morning, judgment must fall. But even as it falls, God is at work to bring David back. Even as judgment falls, God is at work to bring David back. Verse 31 again. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And while David was coming to the summit, where God was worshipped, look, Hushai the archite, coming to meet him, with his coat torn, and dirt on his head. Even as judgment falls, God is at work to bring David back. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that this is premature, and there's a big story arc that runs across 2 Samuel chapters 13 all the way through to 20, and there's a very clear going out that's happening here in chapters 16 and 17, and a very clear coming back in again that happens in chapter 19, and very transparently as you read it, the turning point, the pivot in this whole big structure is chapter 18 and that we'll come to next week, the battle with Absalom's army. That's the fulcrum. For now, David is still trudging disconsolate towards the border. And so isn't it premature to speak of bringing him back? But the truth is that the whole way through 2 Samuel 15 to 17, our author has deliberately written this to give hints of where this is going to end. Let me give you two or three. Um, certainly David puts himself into God's hands, doesn't he? Um, uh, Zadok, the priest, brings the ark out to him with the thought that the ark might be taken with David into exile. And David says, send it back. If it's God's will that I'll be restored, I will be back. There's no need for Jerusalem to lose her king and her gods. Um, certainly David puts himself in God's hands. It's interesting where David ends up at the end of chapter 17. He ends up being provisioned by his former enemies in a place called Mahanaim. And Mahanaim is famous in the books of Samuel for being the place that you run away to. But it's famous in the Bible as a whole for being the place where Jacob met God. This is Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob met God when God was bringing him back from a time of exile. Isn't it interesting that David ends up there? But most striking is the verses we just read, verse 31. It was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, look, Hushai the Archite, 
coming to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Uh, Straight off the bat, I think I want to encourage you that this is an encouragement to say your prayers. And did you notice what happens? Uh, Verse 31, David hears the terrible news that Ahithophel has abandoned him. And that is terrible news, partly because Ahithophel was his friend, but more importantly than that, because Ahithophel was such a brilliant advisor and you really didn't want him on the other side. Verse 31b, David then throws up a prayer. Um, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And you might think that he's just wasting his breath, except verse 32. Look, behold, Hushai the archite coming to meet him. The answer, as it turns out, to David's prayer, the way that Ahithophel's counsel is going to be defeated is through Hushai. And so David throws up this desperate arrow prayer. And it took the Lord all of what? Two minutes? Three minutes? To answer it. Um, As an aside, I guess it's worth asking, do we pray like we actually think that it might change things? Uh, Do we pray like we actually think it is a practical thing to do when everything is crashing down around you? Maybe the most practical thing to do. For the full significance, we need to realize that this is the moment when everything turns. Now, I just said that 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 19 um, has a big story arc to it. It doesn't end in exile and judgment. And it ends, like the Bible story as a whole, with David coming home. And it's true that the structural pivot is chapter 18, but the real turning point is verse 31. Um, The reason that Absalom's rebellion ultimately fails is because he doesn't take the chance to kill David this night as David is on the way out of Jerusalem. And the reason that Absalom doesn't take the chance to kill David on this night as he's on the way out is because when Ahithophel counsels that that's what he should do, Absalom doesn't listen to him. And the reason that he doesn't listen to Ahithophel when Ahithophel tells him to kill David is because he listens to somebody else instead, Hushai. And the reason that he listens to Hushai is because Hushai is there because David told him to be there, having met him right now. And the reason that he meets Hushai right now is because in his desperation, when he had the worst of news, David throws up a prayer to the Lord, and the Lord hears, and look, there is Hushai the archite. It's the turning point of the whole thing. It all changes here. Even as he flees, even as the sword of judgment is so obviously falling, with the tears flowing down his face, and with his friend betraying him, and with hours of night marching left ahead of him, God is preparing the way back. Even as judgment falls, God is at work to bring David back. Now, of course, there is um, a sense which we can take this straight across to any one of us. Um, If the God of grace had mercy on David and pulled him out of this mire 
of his own making, he can have mercy on us too. God is the God of the prodigal. So if you find yourself here this morning or listening online as one for whom the chickens really have come home to roost, if you've been found out and you are facing the irrevocable consequences of what you've done and there's no way out and you're looking for a glimmer of hope, well, you're allowed to look here. The God of all grace had grace enough for David and he has grace enough for us as well. Actually, it's better than that, because the point is that David is not just our example, and he himself is our hope. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you might remember back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and those extraordinary promises that God made to David that his house would be a house that had an eternal kingdom. And you might remember that those promises were described as a charter for humanity. You see, the hope of the world is not that God might treat us a bit like the way that he treated David. The hope of the world is that God might keep his promise to David and give him that eternal kingdom. And so here it is. Even as sin does its worst, and the consequences surely flow, and the sword of judgment falls, even in the midst of all that, the Lord is still at work to keep his promise. Every generation of Israelites could read these chapters and know, if David's sin did not ultimately knock this promise off course, if there was a way back for David, then there is a way back from exile for us as well. Even though the sword of judgment must fall on David's house, even though it would fall again on his children, God is at work to bring him back. But I think we can go one better than that with the benefit of the New Testament. Because 1,000 years after that awful night, another son of David deliberately walked the same path. Did you notice that? as we were having our reading read a minute ago, Jesus left Jerusalem with his followers. He too crossed the Kidron Valley. He came weeping to a garden on the side of the Mount of Olives, where he was met by his betrayer, a betrayer who ultimately shared the same fate as Ahithophel. He threw up his own desperate prayers. He was met by the same combination of cursing and of loyalty, a foreigner walked with him to his doom and others reviled him. And the important thing is that it was not a coincidence. Jesus did it all deliberately. He was deliberately walking in David's steps. He too was under judgment, not for his sin, but for ours. His path ended not in exile, but in death. And the sword of judgment fell on David's house. David's sin and Israel's sin and the sins of all the world, yours and mine, finally dealt with here. It's not even though the sword of judgment must fall on David's house, the Lord is working to bring him back. It is 
because the sword of judgment fell on David's house, there is surely a way back. And the gates to a kingdom of kindness and justice and peace have been flung wide open. And so here it is, a word of hope for those who know that it's all come crashing down and for those who realize that it one day surely will. And whoever we are and whatever we have done, no matter how clear it is that we deserve whatever is coming our way, and ultimately we all do, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has made a promise. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has kept his promise. Judgment has fallen, and the way back is surely open. Let's pray. Father, we praise you so much that we don't have to run away from the deserved consequences of a life lived in rebellion against you. We can face up to your judgment with confidence because of your son, our living Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to praise you that because the Lord Jesus walked in his father's footsteps, and we praise you that we can be absolutely certain that sin is dealt with and that forgiveness is available and the kingdom of heaven has its doors flung wide open. And I pray that whoever we are and whatever we've done, we might put all our hope in him. In Jesus' name, amen.